0: Okay, welcome to Conscious Living Parents, where we talk parenting, partnering, and personing, and everything else in between. Today, for our very first episode, we are incredibly excited to welcome the incredible Dr. Shefali. Uh, uh, I guess one of our favorite, and probably the world's favorite parenting experts, Um, even Oprah loves you, right? (laughs) Um, But really one of the inspirations for this new podcast in the concepts and the way that you've redefined how we look at being a parent and how we should be. Uh, I mean, I remember first reading your book and got was just blown away. So I guess before I welcome you to the podcast, I wanted to say thank you for everything you're doing and welcome. Super excited
1: to have you on board and um discuss parenting and I've I've spoken to you many times before and come to your events and read your books and we are super excited for you to share your wisdom today with other eager parents that are wanting to you know just show up for our children in a really loving gentle way so um yeah welcome thank you for joining us today
2: I'm so honored thank you for having me
0: I guess first question or thing we'd love to ask is in case uh some of our audience I don't know if they've been under a rock or haven't heard about the way that you um you know in the uh, Can you explain the way that you present conscious parenting and what
2: it means? Well, it's very deep and complex, but the elevator pitch is that conscious parenting inverts and reverses the traditional parenting paradigm where the parent fully understands that they need to raise themselves as much as, if not more, then raise their children. What this means is that the parent puts the spotlight on themselves. In the traditional model, we have gotten away with blaming and fixing and creating the the child that lives before us and never taking accountability for our own stuff, our expectations, our baggage, our consciousness. So conscious parenting teaches the parent that, hey, you need to become really conscious and mindful of all that you are bringing onto this dynamic, and uh, how you are imposing your past onto your children. It's a
1: pretty good ex- explanation, and I think, I think conscious parenting too. It's just. They say that kids are our biggest teachers and they really are. Like whenever I'm triggered by, I've got a seven-year-old son at the moment, if he ever triggers me or I find I get really worked up about something, I feel like it's just a massive mirror and highlighter of something that I haven't healed. And you can tell kids to do what you want them to do, but they really are going to do as they see. So how we're showing up, how we're speaking to them, our energy, they just copy. They're such little sponges, aren't they?
2: Well, the sponge is not just of us, but also of the world. So we just have to be careful of our part because sometimes parents blame themselves for, you know, quote unquote, how badly their kids turn out. But I always remind them that sure, they have a part, but it's not just them either, right? So when parents hear my message, their immediate instinct is to feel guilt and shame because they remember all the horrific things they've done. And I remind them that they are just one part, one spoke in the wheel, but they are a very pivotal spoke, very, very pivotal spoke. So we just have to take care of that part, our energy and our interaction. But even if we're quote unquote semi-conscious, it doesn't mean that the children won't sponge up other influences and you may have to still deal with that. Definitely.
1: Definitely. And I think a part of for me, conscious parenting too, is humanizing humanizing myself and letting go of the expectation that I need to be perfect. So when I do stuff up or I do raise my voice, it's like getting down on his level and apologizing to him and helping him see that we don't have to be perfect all the time. Because as parents, it's impossible. It's such an unrealistic goal to be perfect and to be calm and gentle 24-7, you know, seven days a week, every single day of the year, right? We're gonna have moments.
2: I love that you said that. And I want the listeners to really underscore that it is such a humanizing philosophy because when you humanize yourself, which conscious parenting focuses on, then you immediately humanize your children. But when you falsely pedestalize yourself or your belief systems and your expectations, then you expect your children to stay on that pedestal as well. And it's so much unconscious projection going back and forth. So what you said, when you humanize yourself, meaning you accept yourself as you are, that immediately translates to the children.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of uh, when we went and seen you in Brisbane earlier this year. And um, I guess everyone was after these black and white answers to parenting, like, you know, do this, do that. And you just kept flipping it back gently to everybody. And there was one that really, um, it got really dusty in the room for me when you answered this one, but there was a guy there that was, uh, (laughs) which means it was a bit, bit emotional, but um, there was a guy there. remember that he uh, was very scared for his boy, that he wasn't the same as everyone else. And that he was a little bit delayed in, in learning and et cetera. And he, and he was really trying to change him and, and, you basically flipped it around to sort of showing how that the boy will feel that, that fear in him. And it, it was, it was powerful, right?
2: Right. So that parent, that father was putting so much pressure on himself to make his child fit in. Right. We do this so unconsciously because we believe it's our job. It's our task to make them all the things we were not or all the things they need to be. When we do this, we put so much pressure on ourselves. And when we put this pressure on ourselves, we see failure every time this expectation doesn't get met. So the child suddenly no longer is a child. It's only a reminder of your failure. So that father came that day on the stage. And if I remember correctly, he said that he threw something at the child and he was eight years old and he was so angry at the child for not being typical. And that father was feeling shame because he thought he was a bad dad. But we uncovered that he wasn't bad. He had all this fear that the child was unfixable and he felt it was his job to fix and most of us parents somewhere feel it's our job to create this perfect human being, and in doing that, we create so much anxiety within ourselves, and dump it all on the kids when they don't meet that expectation.
1: Yeah, it's so powerful. I would love to know. It's something I feel I'm trying to move through now, but honestly, really, really struggling. So my little boy's about to turn age seven. The the line between gentle parenting and conscious parenting and boundary setting and like I don't believe in punishment or naughty corners or anything like that but I'm now finding it that I'm almost too gentle that I feel like he's just getting away with everything and there's no consequences but I don't know I don't know how to bridge those two together if that makes sense
2: so when you say you feel he's getting away with everything, what is he getting away with? Give me an example.
1: Um, you know, wanting to sleep with us in the bed and kicking and screaming until, you know, we'll eventually give in because we don't want him being so upset and he'll want, we feel he wants to be close with us and he's only going to be little forever. But then it happened last night and I said to my husband, he's kicked and screamed so much that we've given him. Are we teaching him now? Oh, if I kick and scream, I get what I want.
2: Okay, so what I always teach in conscious parenting is to go beneath the words and the behavior to the need. Mm. So what is the need you think he's trying to express? I already know it. Connection. Because of certain events in your life, but go ahead. Connection. Um, I'm
1: guessing connection.
2: Correct, but particularly why? Because he wants connection, particularly right now because
1: the attention's not on him the attention's gone to his little right. sister right so where is
2: the attention little sister right you just gave birth right you just gave birth how long ago 10 weeks ago 10 weeks ago so the the king has been dethroned
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> oh good way to put it yeah
2: So anyway, nighttime is a moment uh, or many moments of anxiety for our children because they want connection. They want to stay with us for longer. You know, only children feel it's not fair because typically the parents have each other, but now you've given birth and I presume you're with this baby a lot.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. It's, it's a, thing that I'm working on carrying the guilt and shame around is trying to how to how to split my time but to be honest at the moment it's not split evenly it's 90 percent with her because she needs me to survive whereas he's at school and he's going to do a sport and he's with dad so
2: yeah that makes sense so then at night when the whole party is in the other room and you're making him go to the to his own room of course he's protesting mm-hmm. so that's a given um, so again your initial reaction was, oh, I think he's getting away with everything, which makes him the bad guy. Right. And if you go deeper and you understand that he is trying to tell you, hey, I don't want to sleep alone. Everybody's together and I'm alone.
1: Yeah, it makes you have more compassion for where he's at, what he's feeling. Right. So
2: maybe we can do some other system where – he sleeps with you and the, the girl in his room and then you will transition out of there or some other way to make him feel included. But, but what's important is that he's escalating to kicking and screaming because somewhere he's feeling like he can't communicate to you.
1: Yeah, 100%.
2: Interesting. Okay, thank you.
1: That definitely answers my question and helps me understand more to go 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 below the symptoms i suppose and find the deeper the deeper core as to why he's
2: showing up like that and having these big emotions around it right you have to always ask what is the need what is the need because otherwise they do behave like psycho lunatic monsters right so we it's not it's not hard to pitch them as the bad, irrational guys because they kind of act crazy. <laughs> so the only way then to build, to build but but that approach doesn't help us when we think that they're psycho-lunatic monsters, then we create separation and we want to yell at them and punish them and we feel like they're manipulating us. Yeah. When we when we trust, when we trust that they are intelligent beings who are trying to communicate something, then we can go deeper and ask what are they trying to communicate? And then immediately your heart opens with compassion.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. We be had to use that in so many situations. Well all situations with our kids. So thank you. That's yeah, beautiful.
0: As a as a follow up to that, then, right, like you're talking about that, but from the parent side of things, there is this fear that, well, if I, you know, I understand this now, and I give compassion, and I want that to happen. But if I allow this to continue for a certain amount of time, then it becomes a new baseline that that we now sleep together, or that we do this, you know, you can see, understand why a parent might be like, and then that's going to affect my sleep, and etc. So then, you know what I mean, where? is the balance in regard in, in providing that understanding he needs connection and giving that, but then also going, well, I'm going to give that, but there also needs to be uh, my needs met as well.
2: Absolutely. So we don't have to flip flop from one extreme to the other. So we have to be clever about it and creative and come up with something, you know, uh, one time, uh, a, maybe a nine-year-old, I think it was, was having anxiety leaving the mother at night. So we took a string and we put a string from her bed to his bed. So every time he felt anxious, he could pull the string. We left her bathrobe in his bed. You know, we, we try creative ways, but especially when a new baby comes on the scene, this is standard protocol for the older one to act completely immature and regress. Because they're looking at the younger one and going, wow, this younger one can't do anything and is getting all the love. So I'll just act like a young three-year-old again. So we have to be creative. We can go to his room, make a little tent, everyone sleep on the floor, and then you sneak out. You know, So you don't give up all your power, but you make him feel special that this is something fun and creative. We're all coming to your room. Wow, we, we want to be in your room. And you can just make a cute little pillow thing on the bed, on the floor. And when he's asleep, you can leave. So it doesn't have to be a life sentence, but that's how we can kind of meet their needs and meet our own by, by staging it, by being creative. It's almost compromising,
1: right? It's not like your way or my way. It's how can we come together and both make sure our needs are being met and you're met and you're feeling seen and heard, but I'm not losing sleep over you kicking me all night. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. And you don't if if it is in your room, you make the tent in your floor. But I always tell parents, don't get the kids in your room because, you know, it's like guests, you want to go to their house so you can leave. You don't want them to come to your house. They'll never leave. <laughs> so you always try to go to you go to the kids room. Don't let them be comfortable in your room. Yeah,
1: that's a really good answer. But, but then the parent complains. Oh, I don't
2: want the, the parent then complains. Oh, I don't want to get up at night and go to to his room. Well, which do you prefer—the kid in your room and stuck like glue, or you in their room but then you can leave? You know,
1: <laughs> I think a lot. I think a lot of parents listening will get a lot out of that answer. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> um, I'd say the majority, or not, yeah, probably the majority of our clients, Ashley and I, are working on empowering mums specifically, um, suffer a lot of anxiety, and majority of when you break that down with them, the majority of their anxiety comes from that not being able to control like what happens and, and with their children, like it it's, it's, you know, when you're working on them about controlling what they can influence and letting go where their concern is, it's really a, quite a strong barrier with, but my kids and I can't really control anything. I understand that, but I really want to. And then, then it gets like, do you have any tips and tools on, on that? I mean, sure you would have seen it.
2: It's really difficult. We want to control them because we are anxious because not having that control makes us feel not good enough or makes us feel unhappy. So we're trying to manage these children. Just yesterday, my 19-year-old wrote wrote to me, texted me from college and said, oh, I'm bored. And, uh, you know, and then she said, I think I want to eat or shop. So I said, why don't you just eat? It's cheaper. Right. So, um <laughs> So we just joked about it, but I noticed myself wanting to fix it uh, and wanting her to be entertained. And then I wrote to her, I said, anyway, you know, being bored is quite normal. So nothing to be alarmed about. But I had to go through a process. And so it is with most parents. If the kid doesn't get invited to a party, our fears of the kid not fitting in makes us feel anxious Because then we'll have a kid who probably is an outcast and then we don't like that. And and then we catastrophize. Or if the kid gets a C grade, then we're thinking, oh, my God, my kid is a loser. He won't go to college, right? Immediately, we panic because we don't like anything other than perfection. So conscious parenting trains you to realize how crappy life really is all the time and to accept it. So when you accept it and accept your own crappiness, you'd stop demanding this high control from yourself and from the environment. It's it's the surrender to the imperfection of life. Um, your child will not be, you know, a superstar 24-7. If they're a superstar for five days, that's amazing. They, they won't be happy for every day of their life. They won't be the most popular every single day. So if you train yourself to accept that they are okay, even though they're not perfect, you'll be better off. But that can only come when you've accepted yourself for not being perfect. Mm -hmm. Say it louder for everyone at the back. (laughs) Wow.
0: This is the confronting thing about your message, right? And where you say uh, a lot of Initially, when you came up with this concept, a lot of people like, uh, no one wants to hear this. This isn't going to work. It's, uh, no, we we don't want to know that it's on us first. Um, it's it's scary, but also the way you deliver it makes it feel possible. But you must have had so much kickback on this message so often.
2: Yeah, I've had like blatant rejection, anger, stonewalling uh, you know, degradation, but I understand why, you know, we, we became parents to finally have somebody to control. And then when you have these bloody children and you can't control them, it's, it's, it's such a mind F that you, you can't believe that you can't even control these little children. And in fact, the more little they are, the less you can control them. They're so irrational. Uh, And then you have visions for them to be a certain way so you can feel good about yourself. And when those visions don't come true, it's heartbreaking, you know, for us parents. We, you know, on on our positive side, we're not doing any of this uh, in an evil way. We're just doing this in an unconscious way. And so I have compassion because I saw my own unconscious dreams shatter before my eyes. So I understand how parents... Uh, get caught up in those expectations. And mm-hmm.
1: where is it? Where does all this perfectionism come from? Is that obviously our childhood and our parents going through all of this unconscious? They, they parents. You know, I think, obviously.
2: I think we're, pro- I think we're progressively becoming more delusional that we can control our environment and ourselves, and we biohack and we're you know, anti-aging and we're creating artificial virtual realities. And all of this feeds a grandeur of superiority that we can control. You know, we have positive affirmations and we can, you know, meditate on command with these waves and these helmets that can, you know, teach you how to meditate. So we're bypassing the very raw reality which is actually we have no control mm. so we're increasingly becoming more about perfectionism and control and so where does it come from it comes from uh, dire anxiety to just be here as we are and kind of messy right and incomplete and actually we don't know how to biohack anything we think we do we think we can hack things so sad that we're hacking, you know, everything's becoming a hack and a shortcut and a virtual game and it's all economically, economically run and driven, but we don't see that. Right. But it has an effect on us.
0: Yeah. So true in, in regards to perfectionism, right. Which it sounds like the message today, a lot of this is underlying. Um, a lot of our clients, again, when, when you're working with clients they're they believe that that perfectionism has come from early in their childhood when they were being the, you know, always pleasing child, like well done. And then as a conscious parent, I'm having this conversation with really good friends at the moment, mates, And we're like, it's so normal to say well done. And you know, like you get sort of uh, the, the child, uh, feels good about it. You feel good about it when you're like, well done, you're so good at this, or you're such a good sharer, but it is sort of like, how do you decide when you're creating this area of pleasing people perfection versus just giving positive feedback?
2: Yeah. I think when we are overly focused on good behavior, that trains the kid to be very good. And when we are scared of bad behavior, we show it right. We get angry, we clench our jaw, we wag our finger, Um, And all of us do this to some degree, but I think those of us who who are less tolerant do it more. And those kids then suffer from, you know, greater anxiety and perfectionism. But again, it also depends on the temperament of the kids. Some kids are just naturally more more anxious and more pleasing and other kids are more rough and tough and, and more resilient. You know, some kids just are wired differently. So we have to be aware of how the kid comes and and encourage them to have space to develop more holistically. So if you have a very pleasing child, don't think that you're so lucky. Oh, what did I do so right that I got such an angel? Th- that angel will start becoming a nervous wreck. You know, become aware that no one can just be an angel. We have to allow them the space to be all sorts of things. And I think we are so conditioned to like the good child that we then create these perfectionistic driven children you know because we can't we don't like bad children quote-unquote bad children but conscious parenting teaches us that that quote-unquote bad child is really an amazing child too because they're challenging you and they're forcing you to rethink your your goals and your visions and your belief systems what an amazing child but the bad child has a bad rap and I'm all for the bad child you know
1: and if, if we react and respond loudly and don't hold space for our children to have those big emotions and we shame them by saying, you know, the finger like you said or yelling, they, they, do they then learn I'm only loved when I'm good? So I'm going to suppress all those big emotions because I'm only loved when I'm being really good and, you know, being the good girl because I feel like that was me growing up. I feel like a lot of other people listening might feel the same as me I feel like it's quite a common theme when I talk to my girlfriends it's like be the good girl be quiet sit over here achieve 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 but if you're naughty go to your room and like I don't want to deal with you so I would suppress those emotions because I felt wasn't I felt like I wasn't loved if I was to be upset or be angry or express something that didn't feel good it was pushed away
2: 100 percent. So we're always contouring our children's behavior by encouraging just the behaviors that make us feel very good. Right. So if your son went to bed quietly because he's the good boy, you'd be like, wow, what a good boy. But what if he was suppressing how he felt? Mm. So your kid is like amazing. He's going to bite you, kick you, spit at you. And you're thinking, oh, he's a quote-unquote bad kid, but he's not. He's actually trying to get you to listen to his needs. Oh, I don't know about you, Levi, but little moments pop up of guilt and shame of
1: like, you know, you can think of so many situations where I've done this. Like I have I have rewarded him and said, good boy, like it's almost, you, re- you repeat what's happened to you. I'm definitely more conscious than what my parents were and I'm trying harder. But yeah, even hearing you say that, that, there's definitely so much reward for being good and well-behaved. But makes you sad to think about, yeah, well, right. what if that good was just suppression out of fear?
2: Right. So we can do, we, right. And if, even if you've done that, that's okay. But now be mindful of when he's quote unquote bad to not label him bad. And yes. To understand that that's, that's also good
1: yeah. in some way. And all emotions and feelings are welcome, right? They all, they all welcome. <laughs> as triggering as they can be
2: sometimes. Right, we get triggered and, and and that's normal to get triggered too. But then uh, post-trigger, we can do some post-mortem analysis and see you know, what was the cause, what was coming up. And then over time, you train yourself to be less triggered. But it's really hard. And so to put the expectation that you're not going to be triggered is also insanity because you are going to get triggered you just start getting triggered less and less and less.
1: And your recovery time is quicker. I, f- I find the more I'm aware of it, even if I do get triggered and react, I feel like my recovery to get down on his level and talk Oh, mommy's feeling tired and stressed and didn't breathe next time. Like, can we start again? Next time I'm going to try and do this with you. You know, I feel like my recovery time is getting quicker.
2: Yeah. And that's awesome. That's, that's it. As long as our recovery time is getting better. And as the kids grow older, you will start catching yourself even before, but it takes years of practice. Yeah. So young young parents can't expect this of themselves. Yeah, that's a lot. Parenting's a lot.
1: <laughs> Kids are a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> We're a lot.
0: <laughs> uh. um, so what I'm hearing from that response or etc. Right is that. Um, <coughs> rewarding and and saying, well done, that was, you know, you're such a good share or you're such a good girl. That's totally fine as long as you're not only over on this side. So that there's, it's both that is, is, you know, it's when you're totally ignoring their bad behavior and only doing that, that's when it's, it's creating these issues. But if you're doing it and you're feeling like you're in a a balance and you're able to see both and you're able to accept both and and allow both, then, then that's quite um, okay for parents to be looking at.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That you you don't suddenly think of the kid as a bad kid because they're being bad. You see them still as a good kid is what I'm saying. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. you try to understand them.
0: The question on this then uh, is your work with the ego, which is, uh, you know, I think maybe one of the first people to bring that in with parenting. What, where do you find, because obviously when we've, when we allow ourselves to be controlled by a certain behavior, like guilt, where do you find the payoff? Like where, are, where are parents and where are we hiding behind that guilt? And what, how is that serving us um, as a way to stay there and allow ourselves to feel that? It must, it must be giving us something, right?
2: Guilt is uh, bathing in feeling bad. Some of it is constructive if it can move into action. But when we stay bathing in the in the melodrama that I'm so bad, I was so bad, you know, some of it is good, you know, to feel because we should have a conscience that made us realize that, you know, I dumped on my kid and that wasn't cool. But when guilt stays stagnant, then it's just you acting like you're feeling bad, but you're not atoning or creating the change to to change your behavior so your child doesn't have to experience that unconsciousness again. So when guilt stays stagnant, it's self-serving to get your attention, to make people realize that, Oh wow, she really feels bad. She really feels awful. Who cares? Right? Like I always tell parents, your kid doesn't care if you feel bad, they care that you don't do it again. Mm -hmm. So you can say, sorry, but sorry is just the first step. The real hard part is to change your behavior.
0: Oh, well, so it's, it's basically, it's serving you as, as, um, a way to get sympathy, one for yourself and from others. It, when you, when you, if you re, re, remain stuck in that guilt without taking action, it's, it's really, it's the, the, the positive of the guilt obviously is, is a, a, stimulus to take action. But if you're loving and staying in that and you're bathing in that, like the wording you're saying, it's, it's really self sympathy and sympathy from others that it helps you like you, that's what you're getting.
2: Yeah, and typically guilt moves into shame and shame is I am bad, right? So, And then if you have had a past childhood conditioning of shame, then you plug into that message and then you get really, really down on yourself and depressed. And then, you know, the poor kid is like waiting for you to be lovely. And now you've been triggered in your own past shame. So now it's impossible for the kid to get their needs met.
0: Okay, I understand Hmm. that. That's good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot to process, isn't it? Um, I would love to know too. Kind of, I mean, it it all ties in with each other, but your views on discipline and how how you would teach discipline, or you know, how you did it with your kids. Because I I understand everything that was said, and it gives me a lot to think about. And I, I feel like I'm quite aware of a lot of it, but still on discipline. What's your views on it?
2: Well, typically when people say discipline, what do they mean, right? So do you mean like the traditional (laughs) forms of discipline? As in
1: punishments go to your room um, or taking something off them when they've done something bad. I, I don't know. I suppose maybe I'm still feeling a little bit foggy on I understand to get to the deeper need from the child, but what happens if, you know, they I'm not trying to think they hurt someone at school or they stole something from you or you know they continuously hit their little sibling or something yes you can get to the deeper need but do you think there is a time and place for a consequence or a discipline action after that?
2: So um, most of the discipline that we do is reactive and it has nothing to do with the crime. So if your kid stole something from you, going to the room is not gonna help them. What's gonna help them is for them to understand how it hurt you and to return it and to to do some role playing around, what if I stole something from you? Most children act bad, quote unquote badly, because of a lack of uh, development or a lack of skill or a lack of practice. So they're not acting bad because they're you're raising a thief. Um, now, if the kid was on his iPad a lot, then taking away the iPad makes sense. But taking away the iPad because he pinched his sister doesn't make any sense. So we try to make sense, we try to, and it's really hard to not retaliate as a parent because we do have power. But I did try in my own uh, parenting when my daughter was around five, when she was behaving not so beautifully on the dining table, to go to her room. But let me tell you, I made it worse because then she was crying in her room. Then I had to go to the, you know, I had to, I, I learned to find another way to handle the here and now without sending her to her room or creating a retaliation. So it's really hard not to retaliate, Um, but we often make it worse. So the best way to discipline your kids is to keep teaching them over time, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. But you, you will do it a lot. So parents think that if they just slap the kid or yell at them and scare them, they'll teach them cause and effect. They will not teach them cause and effect. They'll just teach them fear. Or they may learn cause and effect as well, but they'll also learn fear and resentment toward you. So you have to weigh, weigh what you want to teach them because you don't think you're just teaching them quote-unquote discipline. You're also teaching them shame, fear, resentment.
1: Mm, it's interesting you say about the hitting because my, my stepdad used to hit me a lot and all it did was made me scared of him. I didn't respect him or learn my lesson, of, like you said, about the crime or whatever I had done wrong in his eyes. It just made me scared of him. And I think too, I'd love to know both of your views on this. Um, I suppose it's a touchy subject. I know here in Australia I see debates about it online all the time, but smacking a child was, for me, my personal opinion, I think if I was to smack and physically do that to my children, I feel like I'm teaching them that that's how you deal with the situation. So if I'm doing it at home, are they going to go and smack another kid around the head? <laughs> you know, when that kid does something that that upsets them? What's your views on that?
2: Well, I have very clear, strong views that you don't raise your hand on anyone and uh, it absolutely shouldn't even be part of the debate. Uh, You find another way. You know, that was the old-fashioned way of doing it and now we have skills. So we can talk, we can wait, we can have patience, we can have a pillow... Uh, we can have a walk, we can have a timeout, we can have playing a game, singing, dancing. That is just so primitive. And it's not even part of my milieu anymore to even question. So it's unquestionably destructive.
1: Yeah. And I, I have a lot of compassion for my parents. You know, I don't hold judgment against them because I feel like, you know, each generation now we're getting a lot more aware and conscious. I think about our kids, like, you know, Levi, our children now, like, they they're so much more aware and conscious because of the way we're showing up, was our parents, what their parents did to them, I feel like we're breaking down the cycles as we go. So I don't hold judgment against them, but I definitely looked at that and went that's definitely not how I believe is the nicest way or the right way to be teaching our children or yeah, disciplining them. Is there another word that you use instead of discipline
2: then? Um, I just t- say teach them. Teach them, know? yeah. Yeah, I don't even use the word discipline because I know what it means and people yeah. try to, uh, you know, glamorize the word. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I always say, do you discipline your partner? Do you discipline your friends? Yeah. So why do children need that? Because it's a, it's a good euphemism for punishment, isn't it? Mm,
1: I agree. I love that. No, that I even felt uncomfortable saying the word discipline. But, it, yeah, that's really helped me. Thank you.
0: When it comes to that, because I'll, I'll own up I've of, of uh, Neve's four and I've smacked her twice. Um, I want to get your feedback on this because I know this, is, well, it was pretty clear what you've just said, <laughs> but um, I'm going to try and get around this somehow. Challenge um, <laughs> uh, <Tell> her. <laughs> what, the way that I feel like with with boundaries and ground rules, the way that I would speak and I can hear that in your discipline, it's like, um, you don't just someone does something and you do that because it doesn't make sense. But like we used to run a kids, I used to go into to schools and teach teachers how to um, basically get control of their class really, really quickly. And it was all about creating ground rules with people and making sense of that and going, if we both agree to this. So if they do something like, you're like, okay, come down and sit down. Let's have a chat about, you know, what happened then. Now, do we both agree that that's probably not how we want to show up? And I understand what you did. If we, uh, if this happens again, would you agree that it's fair that we do this? And that as soon as they say, yes, it's like a, a mutual, um, contract really. And I've found that, that well in schools, but also with my daughter, that works really well. I don't have to then manage or discipline anything because she's agreed on it. And, and then once she's agreed, we're pretty good, but, um, I'll give you that as part a, but then I'll explain the, uh, the smacking incident. I want to see what your feedback is on this. So we we're driving down the highway and she was refusing to getting out of her little like, um, car seat. And she refused. She was like, I want to be free. And she was pulling her arms out and she wouldn't put her arms back in. And so I stopped over the side of the road. And I'm like, listen, I understand you want to be free. I like to be free, you know, I like talking it over. Um, but daddy can't let you drive without being safe. And that's my role as the daddy. And I need you to, to be in there. So if you can put those back in for me, and it's like, you know, then we talk about like this was with a three-year-old at the time, you know, like it's really important to be safe. Daddy wants to make sure that you know you get home safe, etc. Da, 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 da. And it's like, I just want to be free, I wanna be free, freedom. <laughs> okay, cool. And then it like get a little bit more stern. So it was like, okay, like what I'm gonna do, done. I don't wanna to have to put your hands back in underneath here i don't want to force that but you're leaving me no choice so dad's going to count down from 10 and if your hands back aren't under there i'm going to move them back under there and she's like you know like you can see it nodding and it gets to 10 still freedom so i move them back in underneath just you know with control and gentleness and i'm like okay so we need to stay there thank you And then like, then she'll put like one thumb underneath the the strap. And it will be like looking at me going like, as we're driving freedom, like sort of half doing it, then pulling it out. And it was like this, it was like a 40 minute trip for a 10 minute trip where we'd pull over, have another chat. And so then it was like, again, at that point, it goes after trialing that I was like, okay, I need to change state here. I need to distract, tried that, tried something else. I'm like, okay, I need to change state with, so I just put a hand out and I said, okay, darling, daddy doesn't want to have to do this. Da, 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 da. Um, and so I smacked her. And as soon as I smacked her, she put her thing back on and we drove home and she hasn't done it again. So, and I don't think she's scared of me, but, um, yeah, if you could explain, well, it's a long two questions, but be the first option about ground rules, how you feel about those. And then two, where I went wrong or what, what you feel like I, maybe I didn't, I, I, yeah, reacted still or, or what I should have done better.
2: You know, it sounds like you did a lot, right? I just feel like you may need to extend that and you lost your patience at the end and I understand, but remember mm. children are not agreeing to anything. When you say like, oh, we made a contract, children are not, they don't understand, right? Their brains are only in the here and now. So it's not fair to say, that children should be held to a contract that the adult signs and the adult makes up. So I just say, you know, to parents, it's difficult. I get it. No judgment, no shame, but certain things try to take out as even options, you know, because if it's an option, then by number 10, you will create, you will use that option. So me personally, I don't have that in my toolkit. So I I'm bloody just constantly negotiating because I want to just keep that out of my toolkit. So I've just taken it out. So you know how it is. If you have a gun, you may use it. Um, In the same way, if that's still in your toolkit, you will think it's okay to use it. Sometimes it's after attempt 10. Sometimes it's after attempt three. You know, who's going to decide that? The parent arbitrarily decides, you know, now I'm going to do it. But another parent may decide it was still early in the game. You decided it was the right time. So it's tricky. And I personally advise parents don't have it as part of your toolkit. Just don't. Then you will discipline yourself to work harder to find a way. How's that feel,
1: Libby? That's
0: good. Yeah, it's it's good. Mm. It's really good.
1: I'd love to ask a different question. Um, I'd love to know... And I suppose because I'm a working mum um, and I find it difficult to blend the work life with parent life, but I I wouldn't change it. I love wearing all different hats. Um, But I'd love to hear your opinions on quality time versus quantity time because I always question, am I spending enough time with my children? Is it better to have lots of time with them or smaller amounts but it's really quality present time because I really have to divide because my work is online. I could be on there all the time. I have to divide home life to work life and separate it. But I feel like I get in the comparison, obviously, as a lot of must-mums do, of not spending enough time with my children.
2: Yeah, I, I was a working mom throughout as well. So I, what worked for me and I advise parents is, first I tell the moms, you do not want to be with your kid all day because they will go crazy. <laughs> like, what makes you think you should be around your kid all day? Like, that is, you know, don't do it unless you have to. It's in society. You know, try to have okay. your kid with others. Don't you think that's that pressure? Right, but that's something... So much pressure on the mom. And and that's so insane. The mother is going to go crazy and if she's already not crazy. And the child doesn't need just one crazy mother. The child needs several crazy people to decide what kind of crazy works for them, right? So don't just subjugate the child to one person all day. So I don't think that's healthy at all. And I think two, two hours in the morning and four or five hours at night is, is a lot as long as they're well taken care of during the day, um, you know, and you're there in the morning and a few hours in the morning and the pivotal evening, shower, bedtime, and they have surrogate mothers during the day is beautiful. So this idea that the mother needs to be on 24-7 is again unrealistic pressure and the mother gets resentful, she's on empty, the child feels it and everyone is miserable. Now I'm talking about privilege right? Many mothers don't have a nanny or, or you know somebody to give the kid to. If they do then that is ideal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mothers stay all day because they think that's the righteous thing to do. and I don't agree with that.
1: I don't agree with that either. It's just something that over the years being online, when I go to work I get a lot of hate for being a part-time mum and why would I have children if I'm not going to be with them all the time? So I feel like society, I don't know if it's just in Australia maybe, but you get slammed for being a working mum and it's, it's horrible. I, I've had to really work work through that and I, I still find it hard when I receive those messages and comments because it does make you question like, oh, am I doing the wrong thing by going to work? Should I be with my kid all the time? Whereas logically I, don't, I agree with everything you've said, but I know so many working mums carry that guilt going to work, you know, full-time, part-time and not being with their children all the time.
2: Right, and where are they getting the guilt from? From the stay-at-home moms. So that is so tragic because no no set of moms should judge the other set of moms, right? The working mother shouldn't judge the stay-at-home mother. The stay-at-home mother shouldn't judge the working mother. And we women need to understand that sometimes this works for us, sometimes that works for us, and we should cut out the competition and comparison. So we judge each other, you see, mm. and we need to teach each other to back off, you know, and and don't judge, including not judging the mother who chooses to be there twenty four seven. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, good for her. Including yeah. the mother who chooses to have only one child, or the mother who has seven children, or the woman who can't have children. Right, each thing works for that person, and we should stop judging because there is no perfect family. And there's no perfect number of children, and there's no perfect way to parent. Why are these expectations only on mums and not
1: dads? Do you think I feel like this? These this day and age, a lot of the dads are stepping up to be more stay-at-home dads, but I don't feel like fathers get that kind of hate or pressure than what what a mum
2: does. Yeah, because we women are doing this to ourselves, mm. and we don't, you know, good good men don't get the pressure. They have other pressures. It's okay. You know, this is not about let's be angry with the dads too. This is about let's be less angry with each other. Yeah. And just get through the day without all this animosity and and comparison. You know, I think that uh, parenting can be a hodgepodge of, of many different people as long as they stay consistent. And I think the bigger the communal effect on the children, the better.
1: Mm, I 100% agree.
2: Thank you for answering.
0: i'd have to say from a dad's point of view that that's i mean i know women do it much more but like from your awakened family book right and and treating us like a a full family unit um you know i I think a lot of the mum guilt uh that i've seen again can come from within that family unit of the dad then basically saying, well, you should be doing everything here because he's not feeling acknowledged in what he's providing or feeling. And so there is that back and forth. He's feeling guilty about being away from the kids, not doing this, coming back. That's not available. And so they, there's this like toxic dynamic within the family that then extends out towards other women and, and internally. Does that make sense?
2: Yes, yes. and And fathers, you know, get a bad rap, I think, for not spending enough time at home. Um, you know, and mothers often, I'll hear them say things like, well, you spent all day outside as if he was, you know, having a great time. And if he comes home kind of happy, you know, I always tell fathers when they come home, (laughs) don't look so happy, (laughs) like look really miserable, because you can't come in all like, oh, I had a great day. And I met a CEO of, you know, this company, and we went for lunch. I'm like, no, 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 don't say these things. Talk about how hard you work, how difficult life is, and how your colleagues are worse than children, and make it feel, make the woman feel that, you know, she had a good day with these little kids. Now I'm just teasing you. But um, women, you know, the thing is this. We became mothers or fathers became fathers because we wanted to. But the moment we become it, we have this kind of, uh, you know, self righteousness about us, which allows us to judge others, including our partners. And I all and so many times women will complain to me about their their negligent husbands who, never mind, are working full time jobs and holding the whole house. You know that we women are very good or quick at minimizing, and I don't like that. I you know I understand men quote unquote seem to have an easier time, but on many levels, they don't have an easier time because they don't get to sleep in. They don't get to play with the kids. They don't get to see the first tooth or the first walk. And men don't get any compassion for that, right? So I often try to be a voice for that. But I always tell women who complain, oh, my husband doesn't do this and my mother-in-law is this way and my children are fighting with each other. I always bring them back to their desire to have children. And I ask them to own it. Nobody asked us to have children. Our children didn't beg us, please have me and birth me. We wanted to be mothers. And with that comes a negotiation of our time. If we don't have money or nannies, we may have to be there all day. What to do? These are defenseless beings. So if you enter the parenting journey with some expectation that life is going to give you some gifts because you chose to become a mother or a father you are sadly mistaken and you quickly realize oh no prize no trophy for this it's a silent uh, job and you have to love it because you have to want you know to hold yourself accountable that you wanted this and once you embrace it for its mess for its compromise for its sacrifice you'll be better off at it you know for many years i could never travel for work and I had to turn down many opportunities, but I, I found a way to not be resentful. And I told myself, well, this is what I need to do for the first 10 years of mothering and I'll travel in the next 10 years. And I didn't see it as a sacrifice as a or as a compromise. I saw this as what was necessary. So, you know, sometimes we are like children, we want the children, but then we want to be treated like, you know, princesses. So we need to just take, Uh, charge of what we wanted and embrace it Mm. and who cares if you're not looking skinny or you're not looking perfect we can't do everything you know women have this toxic message that they should do everything because they can do everything just because we can do everything doesn't mean we should do everything and actually we can't right and we actually can't even do everything so this whole thing is is nonsense you know we can't do everything yeah. And I often give mothers like three things to do for the next two years, only three things. And one of them is take care of yourself. And the other one is take care of your children. And the third one will be to sleep a lot, something like that. You know, we can't do <laughs> a lot. These, these children take a lot of our time, you know.
1: And and energy for sure. 100%. I've got one more question. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any more, Levi. But I've got one more I'd love to talk about. Um, and that's social media, with children, it scares the living daylights out of me. I was honestly scared to have a daughter. Um, I know it happens to boys and men as well, but I think being in the online world, I've definitely caught my sh- fair share of hate and seen how awful <laughs> women can be online. Um I know that I can't stop my son having social media and my daughter as they grow up but they're getting it so much younger like most of Taj my son most of his friends have mobile phones they have all the apps they've got free access to it all You can't you can't wrap them in cotton wool forever but I'm just I'm literally I'm really petrified of what they might experience or uh, feel in the comparison like when we were growing up we could go home and escape everything at school whereas they come home and it's all online now if they make a mistake it's videoed it's there for the rest of their life it's so scary but how, how can I take away my fear or how can I help guide him through bullying in school and online and all the messiness that comes with social media I think it's a great platform for so many reasons but there's also a dark side to it
2: well first I really think that we should not give our kids any screens portable screens and apps till they are teens so a 7 year old cannot be expected to navigate that so if you give it to a 7 year old it's like you're giving crack cocaine to an yeah. adult don't do it yeah so you know so in uh, the other question was how do I help him with bullying that's a whole different issue mm. and Bullying is normal. It's natural amongst children. And it's going to happen to some kid or the other. And we have to teach them how to, uh, you know, answer back. We have to teach them how to say something back in the moment so they feel empowered. You know, so I used to practice with my daughter. You know, if if somebody comes to to you and says, oh, you're fat, stupid, ugly, something like that. Right. Just the three basic ones. I used to always teach her to say, oh, have you seen yourself in the mirror? I just gave her one sentence, okay? Now it seems kind of passive aggressive, like I'm teaching my daughter to be aggressive, but it's the real world, right? So I want to teach her to have a zinger to return with, right? And um, my niece, you know, my niece is adopted and uh, she's 10 years old. And my, my cousin taught her that if somebody says to you, oh, you're adopted, then you should say this thing back. So this is the thing she taught her to say back. So and the other day somebody told my niece, "Oh, you're adopted. Like you're not special." And she looked at him, the kid and said, "This was the line she learned. Oh, at least my parents made a choice. Something like that." You know. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what it is. You're basically teaching the kid to not. Allow that comment to hit them and to push back against somebody being mean in a, in a non-threatening but equally zing zing way. And I so what I'm trying to say by that is if you understand that bullying is going to happen, then you will role-play with your kids and teach them how to react. You know, I used to go through all these abduction scenarios with my daughter without scaring her. I was like, oh, somebody's gonna come with candy. And it's the best candy in the world, you know? And I was to try to lure her. And for 19 out of 20 times, she used to get lured. She used to be like, sorry, mom, I really like that candy. And I was like, oh my goodness. So we used to practice and practice and practice, right? I always say kids don't know because of skill, development, or practice. So practice with your children how to handle these bullying situations. And you have to teach them to, to stand up for themselves, right? Give them the
1: language. I love it. You said that. I, I do the kidnapping scenarios, but when it comes to bullying, I always just say to Taj, you always say that that's not nice. And it doesn't make me feel good, but really it's, <laughs> I don't think it's going to help him too much in that situation. Is it? I would rather give him something more empowering, but I haven't known yeah, how to help him with that. So that gives me something to think about a, a zing zing <laughs> that makes him feel empowered. It's yes. not threatening. It's not putting the other person down, but it's still not
2: making him be like, you know, walked all over you can you can just tell the kid to just say oh yeah what about you yeah okay <laughs> and then walk away or oh yeah have you seen yourself like just something to to push it back in a cute, in a more assertive way mm. versus saying that's not nice right of course that's not nice that's why the kid does it they know that that's not nice so they whenever somebody bullies they're trying to test the victim and if the victim is like soft, soft, then, and especially if the victim starts crying, then the bully gets what the bully wants. So the bully needs to be needs to feel that the victim can stand up for themselves. And that's all I mean. Like, I'm not teaching the kid to bully back, yeah. but to kind of give it back, you know? Yeah,
1: love that. Thank you, that answered it clearly. Levi, have you got another question?
0: Oh man, I've got 400. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Time
0: you have? <laughs> yeah it's not often uh my next question for me is around uh extracurricular activities and and constantly being busy and extra homework and you see kids going into private school and parents just sort of i don't know they spend their whole day driving to school to the best school because they're scared of that and then they're keeping them busy 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 and it feels like the kid has no downtime, et cetera. Where do you stand on that and and where a decent balance is? I know it's different for everybody, Mm -hmm. but um, it feels a little like a bit crazy at the moment for me. Like I I won't be going down that, I guess, path with Neve. It'll be more, um, more, more own time.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, you know, you can predict my answer. I just look at that. So parents who fill their kids' life with scheduled activities are really um, being short-sighted because they're teaching their children that they need to be busy all the time versus just to enjoy life and to enjoy quiet time and downtime. But we're so afraid of that, that we fill our schedules with all these activities. But it's really to the point of the parent filling a need rather than the children needing children don't need more than one or two extra things in a week. Maybe, um, children need time to play in an unstructured way. They need time to be imaginative and fun and, and be creative and that's what they need. They don't need to be in one structured activity after another.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yep. So they're doing it as a way to prevent or it's out of fear. Um, most likely,
2: yes it's out of this frenzied anxiety that they should be doing all these things teach them a foreign language teach them a sport teach them an instrument send them to you know sign language you know have play groups call the friends go skiing i mean it's such it's so parent driven that it becomes quite clear that maybe the parent is doing all this because they feel that these prescription boxes need to be filled
0: Hmm.
2: hmm. Interesting.
0: hundred percent. Um, okay. I know time's on the, uh, essence. I've got one more question before we, uh, uh, is, is around partnering and how to be the best or be on the same page in regards to good cop, bad cop sometimes, but also just, um, Yeah. You know, whatever your, your sort of main tips in regards to maintaining the relationship, while, while parenting and and where most people go wrong or where they go right, or what you see as, as a great balance or
2: yeah, it's not easy. One of the most common questions I get is, oh, what if my partner is not on the same page as me? And, uh, it's hard to be on the same page, uh, around parenting. So I would say, you know, for the parent who is becoming more conscious to, Do not expect the other person to change because you're changing and to do your best with what you got. And unless it's terribly abusive, kind of manage it. What what I mean by that is we cannot expect our partner to become who we are becoming. And it'll create more anxiety and control in the house if you're constantly changing your partner. Your partner will bring certain skills, you bring certain skills, and for the most part, it can work except if it becomes too abusive, you know, and then you need to really change gears.
1: That's really good advice because I definitely find the more I learn about parenting because I'm so passionate about learning about it and wanting to do better, I definitely expect and project that onto Steve way too often. So thank you for that because that's a big wake-up call, a bit of a, not a slap in the face, but a good like, ah, be a bit kinder to him because I definitely do that. I'm very guilty of that.
0: Yeah, could be a bit. I'm guilty doing this. Over you should too. do this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I thought you might be. I'm doing this. I've learned this. You need yeah. to do this now. This is the best way. This is the only way. I know better. <laughs> I'm not that aggressive, but that's how it would come across to him, I'm sure.
0: Um, yeah, so I guess uh, one of the greatest things around how you have how you approach and everything you've done to reframe parenting is that it's all put back on ourself. And, you know, like we've got to become better. And I guess that is the whole basis behind the Evolve Summit, right?
2: Yes. So every year I have a gathering. Of course, we couldn't have had it for the last three years. But uh, this is my sixth one. It's an annual summit. If people want to meet me in person and come and learn from me in a very in-depth way, I would love people from Australia and New Zealand to come. Uh, It's in October. It's in, in the U.S., on my website. So I would love, you know, many people travel all across the world to come for this experience because it's all about conscious parenting and conscious living. And when you leave after four days, you leave with not only tools to change your life, you leave change. I mean, the experience changes you. And I know it's a long way, but, uh, I've had people come from Australia before. So I would love to invite, uh, the, your your listeners to check out my page drshefali.com, follow me on Instagram and maybe you'll make it to my Summit Evolve.
1: We have it we have some American um, mums on there as well. I talk to a lot of American mums over there and it's just something so special about that face-to-face connection and going to a live event and you know I loved the last event that we went to in Brisbane. You know, you get got a lot of parents up to stand up and talk about, you know, something they're going through and it, it really is awesome. So I'm so excited that you are back doing face-to-face events like this. And I highly encourage anyone listening, if you get the opportunity to go along.
2: Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's so different when it's face-to-face. Yeah. And we've we've all been on Zoom for so long that we need to kind of get out of our shells and experience that person-to-person connection again.
1: Beautiful. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. And for our listeners, like you're not just you know, some people write books, they're incredibly intelligent, watching you handle information in live events and seeing you be able to decode it and break it down in a second, like you're such a skilled practitioner too. Like it, yeah. it is, it is a billion percent worth seeing you live. Uh, it was, it was so, I always like to see if someone knows their shit when they're presenting, not just write, they can write it. And by far, it was just like, wow, like in the moment, wow, in the moment, wow. So, Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll put all the information in all the show notes and definitely, um, yeah, make sure everyone gets a hold of it.
2: Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Good luck with this podcast. I'm so excited. It's called Conscious Living. And uh, I'm so honored that you called me to be the inaugural talk. And uh, thank you both. And good luck uh, with your parenting and your podcast journey. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Dr. Shafali. Bye.
2: Thank <sniffs>